Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. When I was a kid, my mom had a, a, you know, a magnet holding a piece of paper on the refrigerator, and it was a poem about attitude. And it was all about how the world will throw in some things you like, some things you don't like, but how you handle it is on you. It's the attitude that you bring to it. My name is Rich Lester. I'm the global chair of BCG. I was our CEO for many years prior to taking this role. I must have read that poem a hundred times and I actually thought of all the things that prepared me to be CEO, where you have so many unexpected things, sometimes really good things, but frequently less good, you know, challenges that you have to deal with internally, externally, what you bring in terms of attitude and the willingness to take on challenges, I think has an enormous impact on how well you do in the role. That attitude Rich is talking about can also be described as mindset. The human brain is a marvel of science, a powerful tool that we're still just learning about. But in order to actualize the universe of ideas, solutions, and hopes we aspire to, we have to learn how to harness our brain's power, overcome our doubts, and shift our mindset according to the circumstances that we face. I'm Caroline Modaresi-Chirani, and this is American Metamorphosis. Across this entire season, we're going to explore six different mindsets that we can master. Tapping into these insights will empower us to regain a sense of control in these uncertain times and help leaders inform and refine their decision-making. We wanted to start this series with adaptability. It's a concept that we've heard so much about. If you scan the business section of your local bookstore, you'll probably see dozens of titles on the theme. The idea of being adaptable is grounded in science and evolution and represents a specific mindset that we can tap into, but it isn't always about how we can adapt when the chips are down. It's about our innate capacity to choose a different path. There's an old quote uh, that I've always kept close, near and dear to my heart. It comes from Bruce Lee. The quote is, to be like water. And water as a concept is one that's fascinating to me because water can be shapeless and it can be formless, but when you put it into a cup, it takes on the shape of that cup. When you put it into any type of vessel, it takes on the shape of that vessel. And so the idea of being formless and shapeless allows me to find myself in unpredictable or challenging situations and very quickly uh, adapt to them. My name is Vladimir Dutier. I'm a national correspondent for CBS News. Millions of people know Vlad as an award-winning journalist who has reported on the ground from disasters like the devastating earthquake in Haiti and civil rights protests in Ferguson, Missouri. Well, now he pops onto our screens most mornings, but he didn't actually embark on a career in media until he was 40. We know you as a, an award-winning journalist. But you spent a lot of years in finance, which might seem 
curious to people that know you on our screens. So how long were you in the world of finance? My first job in finance was right out of college. Um, I got there, I started working, and very quickly, within a year, I realized that I was really, really good at what it is they wanted me to do. I was an institutional salesman, meaning uh, facilitating trading between uh, large financial institutions, insurance companies, banks, governments. And I was very good at meeting people from all different walks of life in different countries around the world, whether it was the Middle East, Asia, Latin America, or Europe, and getting them to give our company large sums of money. Vlad was finding it easy to adapt to the high-flying world of finance, and he was arguably living the dream, traveling the world, making good money, and achieving professional success. But something wasn't adding up. I was always that guy who sat in a bar or restaurant with people and said, hey, do you see what's going on uh, in Nicaragua today? Or what do you guys make of what is happening in Afghanistan? And people would look at me and say, dude, why are you talking about these things? Because we're talking about how many basis points we're going to make on this next deal. Mm. I just had a moment where there was an epiphany. I sat down on my desk and I wrote down on a little piece of paper. When I was 12 years old, what did I want to be? Who did I want to be? And I wrote down a bunch of things and I kept like whittling down the list and I kept coming back to journalists, journalists. Because I said to myself, this is not what destiny intended for me. I just got lazy and I need to fix that. That transition didn't come overnight or easily. Against everyone's best advice, Vlad decided to do the hard and seemingly irrational thing. And he made a choice to leave his lucrative career and head back to grad school to retrain as a journalist and score an internship. But making that choice required a serious mindset shift. Did he really want to go from making big bucks and leading entire finance divisions to mediocre pay and starting out by getting the coffee? Well, he told me about a conversation with Christian Amanpour that summed up what he was facing. I think I hold the record for being the oldest intern at CNN. I was 39 years old. I was an intern working for a legendary journalist, Christian Amanpour. I was like, well, I want to be a real reporter. And to do that, I have to start from the bottom. I remember she said to me, your boss, the person who's going to be responsible for you is, you know, this young journalist. Her name's Elizabeth. And, you know, she's 26 years old. Are you okay with that? And I was like, I absolutely am. And she goes, I find that hard to believe. In fact, many managers at CNN and early on in my career were suspicious of me because we're human beings and we have these egos. And we say to ourselves, you know, I was in the military. I traveled. I've been to 30 different countries and this kid is 26 years old and she's going to tell me what to do. But what I said to them is she may only be 26 years old, but in the world that we inhabit, the world that I'm entering into, the world of journalism, she's a wizened general. She's a she's a black belt. How did you do this? How did you check that ego at the door, though? Because, I mean, you know, you left a lucrative career in finance. You're almost 40. You become an intern. You're making these conscious choices to pursue your childhood dream, essentially. It's all admirable. But, you know, I, I wonder if people are listening and thinking, that's a lot of ego checking that you've got to be doing, though. I know that in my life, at every point that I've faced a challenge and I've had to adapt, whether it's being a kid who no one, including the teachers, can pronounce your name and you don't speak the language, I, English is not my mother tongue, um, to moving around because my parents were divorced at a young age and entering a new school every year. And I just thought to myself that that ability to do that, I hated it as a kid. I really hated the fact that I was able to sort of find myself in a new situation, which I hated being in but find a way to thrive. 
And, um, but then when I decided to do this, I thought, well, that all those trials and tribulations has to count for something as I begin this next phase of my career. At the end of the day, I've tried to approach everything and how I define these um, things that I've been able to do with the mind of a child, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. What I mean by that is that there's, a, there's an old uh, saying that, you know, in the mind of the child, everything is possible. Mm -hmm. And in the mind of the expert, nothing is possible. Because if you think you already know everything, then what's there to learn? But if you approach things from the viewpoint of a child, then there's an infinite possibility of things that you can learn and things that you can do. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the creative studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. Over the last four seasons of American Metamorphosis, we've talked about a variety of urgent challenges facing our country, from political power shifts and global pandemics, to economic turbulence and technological transformations. No matter the crisis or the solution, there is a theme that has held throughout. We can emerge better, stronger, and ready for the future. We are resilient. In season five, we're building on everything that we've learned, but we're tackling a different kind of obstacle, ourselves. Because if we want to embrace our adaptability, but not get lost in it, we have to learn more about us. Anything that you do, anything that you feel, anything that you think originates in your brain. So really, I, I think anyone who's interested in people, want to understand people better, um, would be interested in how the brain works. So my name is Tally Sherratt, and I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience at UCL. Tally asks big questions about how and why we think and act the way we do. Her upcoming book zeroes in on our adaptability. Now you have a forthcoming book called Born to Adapt. What was the main question you were trying to answer with that book? Born to Adapt looks at phenomena that is very robust, which is that human uh, adapt really fast and really well on average to their environment. Any kind of changing environments, any adversity, we adapt really, really well. Part of the reason is something known as habituation. Habituation is responding less and less to a stimulus that is consistent, constant, or um, is frequent. So let's say you hear some kind of noise, uh, a dog is barking, right? Your brain is really responding to that. But after a while, you don't even notice it anymore. If the dog barks and barks, after a while, you don't notice it. You jump into the water. It's really cold. You feel really cold. And after a while, you kind of adapt, you habituate and, and so forth. So is there a difference in what happens physiologically in our brains when we make an active conscious choice to adapt? versus that sort of habituation you were talking about? Absolutely. It's, it's really distinct. So one, the first kind of um, mechanism that we talked about, habituation, which is our neurons respond strongly to things that are just new, just, you know, someone enters a room, we notice it, and after a while, our neurons just stop responding. Although we can control it, that process is mostly unconscious. We don't even notice that it's happening. 
Um, and that is something you see in all different animals. If you look at the activity of the neurons, you could look at actually single neurons, you will see less and less activity over time. Then when the, the other type of adaptation that we talked about where we're actually changing, that usually comes up as more activity. And usually it will be in regions that are related to planning and thinking ahead. So it will be more frontal regions, for example. So you can adapt by changing the way you think about things. You can adapt by changing your behavior. You can adapt by actually changing your environment. In her forthcoming book, Tally and her co-authors highlight specific areas where research shows that we tend to habituate from personal factors like relationships and lying to societal issues that affect us all, like workplace dynamics, discrimination and climate change. They argue that we should break the habituation cycle when it isn't serving as well. We often say that adaptability is like the key to our survival, but why does it also have the potential to hold us back? Yeah, I think it has a potential to hold us back for these two reasons. One is that we stop noticing the things that should be changed around us. So if you think about the workplace, when you just join a new um, company, you often notice those things that may not be working very well, maybe are not very efficient. Uh, maybe you, you just join so you don't feel very comfortable to say something about it, right? But after a while, you kind of get used to those things and you may not notice them anymore. At that point, you're not going to try to change them, mm. right? Um, and then the other thing is so you can habituate to the bad, but you can also habituate to the good. And habituating to the good means that we kind of forget what's delightful in our life. Let's say you got a new job. It's your dream job. You're so excited about it. You're so motivated. But after a while, maybe it's a few months, sometimes it's a few years, you kind of adapted to it. It seems obvious, right? And you kind of forget how lucky you are to have this dream job. So those are the two reasons. Not noticing those things that we should change and not appreciating so much those things that are wonderful. The good thing is that we can break the cycles of rinse and repeat so we don't just adapt and go on, but we move forward with intention. How can we sort of notice uh, and remember to sort of, you know, smell the sweet stuff, but also be able to recognize when there's something not so sweet? Right. So the opposite of habituation is change. Habituation happens because things are the same. And so once you are able to change, then you will start noticing things. Um, so what does that mean? Let's say we're talking in the work environment. You might have the company rotate people through different positions, right? Or, you know, take them from one assignment to another assignment and then back, right? So now you're back after some time away, you see things differently. Mm -hmm. both because you were away, so now you, it's fresh in your mind, right? And two, because you may have learned something different in this other position, then you come back. Sure, yeah. If you think about your personal life, I had COVID um, and I didn't want my the rest of my family to get infected. I moved down to the basement mm. for a few days, right? Um, and then when I came back from the basement up to the first floor, 
it seemed quite wonderful. I mean, before it, it, it was pretty good, but after four days in the basement, right, that contrast, I could really kind of see um, how wonderful regular life was. How long did that last, though, Tally, right? Exactly. So it's good for a while, and then you go back, right? So you need to kind of change and go back. But here's something that um, Professor Lori Santos, who teaches um, happiness at Yale, she suggests... Um, Instead of actually taking yourself out of your situation, if you can't do that, simply imagining it. Mm. So if you close your eyes and imagining not having your house, your family, your job, really try to kind of imagine it with vividness and detail, that then can actually have a similar effect, right? So now open your eyes, you're back to your reality. Um, and that contrast can also make you more appreciative of what you have. Um, perhaps even notice um, those things that, that you kind of want to change. Creating that contrast and conscious change takes work. It requires honesty, humility, and a genuine desire to improve. None of these are easy to do. But Tally argues that it is critical we make those moves and we see the opportunity in our ability to adapt you were talking about change. And in fact, what we know is that people don't change enough. Um, one really cool study was uh, done by Stephen Levitt from um, Freakonomics, where um, he had people go online and they had to write down something that they were considering to change. It could be something small, like the color of the walls in your kitchen, or it could be something big, like maybe you're considering... Um, changing your relationship, right? Leaving your spouse or maybe... Getting bangs. Get, yeah, haircuts. No, that was one of them, right? Where haircut was one of those. So it could be big or you know, small about your job and leaving the job, keeping the job, whatever. And then he said, okay, um, you are now going to toss a, a digital coin, right? Online, there was a coin. You toss a coin, you get heads, you change. You get tails, you don't change. Um, so people did that. And he found that those people who got heads meaning they should change, were in fact 25% more likely to have made that change. So they listened to the coin to some degree and they were on average happier and more satisfied with their life. Hmm. So why is that? Um, I think there's two main reasons. One is if you're thinking about the change on average, there's probably good reasons that you're thinking about it, right? And that may indicate that you might need to go ahead and do it. But the more interesting reason, I think, if you make a change, what this means is that you are going to, by definition, dishabituate, right? And if you dishabituate, you're going to start seeing what's in front of you with fresh eyes. A new path, a new mindset, new perspectives, or as Vlad would say, through a child's eyes. This thinking can be especially useful in challenging times. I would say relative to the two or three decades I've had a chance to observe leaders and businesses closely, we are honestly in about the most complex period right now. Here's Rich Lesser again. He's the global chairman and former CEO of Boston Consulting Group. We're living in a period of enormous uncertainty and change. And some of that is short term. The inflation outlook, the growth predictions for this year, uh, competitive dynamics that vary sector to sector and all around the world. Some of it is dealing with longer term trends, the, the fundamental reshaping role of technology across every business, whether it's digital or AI 
or the next generation of technology waves in material sciences and nanotechnology and quantum computing and synthetic biology, you have a remarkably complex landscape politically, both politically within country, particularly in a place like the United States that's so divided, but also the geopolitics of the world, starting with the U.S.-China relationship. And then you have these longer-term trends around climate and sustainability, around uh, the, the changing nature of the workforce, its expectations, the need to accelerate diversity and equity and inclusion. That list of woes and worries is why having the right mindset to take on these different transformations can be so crucial. You know, and it's interesting because some of those, you know, those challenges that you outlined, Rich, I mean, they're so manifold and, and it would feels like they demand different qualities in a leader to be able to truly meet them. For you, is there an overarching mindset that you feel is applicable to be able to handle these challenges today as a leader? There's this intersection of optimism that I think most CEOs really evidence, a belief that they can make things better, a belief that their teams can find a way through stuff, that they can strengthen the organization that they're leading, and realism, that you don't live in the, the dreams you have for what the world should be, you live in the reality of what the world is today and where the world is likely going. So it starts with that intersection of optimism and realism, but I think it also extends to how you think about um, your willingness to learn and evolve in your thinking, a sense of humility, a sense of building a team around you and a willingness to embrace change. This episode in particular, we're talking about adaptability and you've kind of touched a little bit on that, you know, which is this, you know, you mentioned that sort of juxtaposition, that duality between being able to sort of you know, part of you living in the in the dream you hope for, but actually also being grounded in the realism of the sort of moment. And so I'm curious, you know, how do you define adaptability from a sort of business and people perspective? I think the starting point for adaptability is a desire to look externally. And I mean externally outside yourself, your own belief structure, what you see, externally outside your team and your organization to see what's going on in the world, to be able to take in new stimulus, to uh, live the Einstein quote, which is easy to say and hard to do, that the, the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. That, that sounds so obvious when you say it, and it's certainly the way Einstein did, but, but actually organizations get in patterns and rhythms and people get promoted having executed in that model very well. I asked Rich what he makes of Tally's research and specifically her contention that to adapt in a positive way means to be consciously engaged in changing behaviours rather than simply habituating. Sachin Adela has a phrase that I just love, which is, you know, when people ask him about the transformation of Microsoft over his tenure, uh, a fair number of years now, uh, that Akiyama was going from a know-it-all culture to a learn-it-all culture. A great quote. And the natural tendency of organizations are to want to be a know-it-all culture. You know, you, you feel better when you're the expert. You feel better when you have a way of doing things that's tried and true and you've gotten better and better at it. But the real test for any organization in a rapidly changing environment is not how much it knows about the way the world is today, but how much it can learn as the world continues to evolve. And not just learn in terms of internalizing in, in an intellectual sense, but learn in a sense of being able to change the actual way it operates, the way it wires itself, the way people interact, the way it 
thinks about the value it creates for customers or operates its practices internally. And it's a balancing act. It's the balancing act between, on the one hand, habituating important things. We, we wouldn't, as, as consultants, we wouldn't use the word habituating. We talk about great processes or, you know, robust organization design or, you know, a clearly executed strategy. It's to get good at that stuff on the one hand, and on the other hand, to preserve a curiosity, a creativity, a willingness to explore, a willingness to be uncomfortable. How does one maintain a learn-it-all culture in an environment where it feels financially precarious or, you know, certainly there's sort of an anxiety? And of course, each situation is different. But one of the things that's often concerned me is this lack of recognition that we need to leave companies a little bit of room to be experimenting, to trying stuff, to not necessarily know where something's going to go. And if people are so worried about how they'll be judged uh, for throwing out an idea or for pushing back on a normal way of doing things that they think is less likely to work in the future mm. or asking for some money to do something a little bit different that doesn't fit in the core budget, but is the right, they think is the right thing to try. If you ask them to only wait to do that until they know for certain it's important, on average, it will be too late. Today, Rich still reflects on the powerful signal that his predecessor gave him before he assumed the role of CEO at BCG. I always valued the day I got elected, because BCG tripled under my predecessor, under Hans-Paul Berger. So I get elected as CEO. He's just had this remarkable run and led us through the great financial crisis, being really uh Really an outstanding performance of, and, and, and having inherited an organization that hadn't grown for a couple of years. So it wasn't that this was always true. Um, so I, I see him the first day in a, a, in a partner meeting that happened to be occurring right after the election ended. And he comes up to me and he says, if you keep doing what I did, I'm going to be really upset with you in his very strong Germanic voice. And I, and I always thought like, how great is that? That, you know, the guy who had success. And so when Christoph got elected, you're my successor, literally the first thing I did was say the exact same thing to him. It's so hard when you've had a successful organization to, to push against the grain of some of the things that have gotten it to that place. And it is absolutely essential. Being adaptable is instinctual, but being able to observe, analyze and grow by making hard choices, well, that's a mindset shift. And that's what we wanted to explore with you over the next few episodes of this season. We'll delve into the different mental shifts that we can make to navigate life's challenges and joys. So keep listening. And as Vlad says, remember to keep an open mind. The great joy that I derive from being a journalist and doing what I do is that every time I meet somebody or every time I have an interview or I get launched into a story, I have an opportunity to learn and understand something that I didn't understand. All of us have perspectives that are developed over the course of our experiences, but but I really am of the mindset that it is those folks who have an open mind who can approach something in an open situation and subsume their ego are the most successful people. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. Join us next time as we unpack what it truly means to have a creative mindset and how our brains respond to creative impulses.